Back in 1959, the remains of Britain's Victorian class system was in its final death throes. As the country dealt with the bleakness of a struggling economy and fairly high unemployment. It was also a time when a group of young writers known as the Angry Young Men published a variety of novels and short stories addressing the issues surrounding that from the viewpoint of the working class. One of the most popular of those publications was a short story by Alan Silitone titled The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. The story was a picture of the injustice England's working class was faced with and how that played itself out as the unemployed resorted to petty crime as a source of income to support themselves and their families. Silitone's protagonist was a young man named Smith who's arrested and sent to a prison school where his running skills blossom and the school's governor sees his victories as a public relations and image coup for the school. On the day of the most important race of the year, Smith suffers a series of flashbacks of all the injustice and abuse of the school. And then rather than winning the race, he stops just short of the finish line. And he allows his chief competitor to win, thereby denying the school's governor the prestige and the image he saw. In a sense, that sort of injustice is what the author of Ecclesiastes is frustrated with. And what he's writing about here in chapter 4. As we look at these 16 verses, there are four key points that stick out. The first is the futility that arises from politics and how we're governed. The second is the futility and discontent that's a result of envy. After that, it's the futility that occurs as a result of loneliness. And then finally, we'll see the futility that often shadows our success and achievement. So let's look at these different verses and see what God wants us to learn. Well, to me, it's obvious from the opening verses in this chapter that the author doesn't think very highly of humanity. And that he views the world as a fairly miserable place where those in power readily take advantage of people. Listen to the words of those three verses again, and I think you'll see where he's coming from. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comfort. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they had no comfort. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who were still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. The kind of oppression the author describes and the futility that results from it is nothing new. It's been around since the fall of humanity, and history is replete with examples of it, such as chattel slavery that occurred in the 18th and 19th centuries. Examples that are closer to our time include the Holocaust, China's great leap forward in its great cultural revolution, as well as the killing fields of Cambodia, the Rwandan genocide, and the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia. 
Although the Holocaust gets the most historical press, nearly five times as many Chinese died during the Great Leap Forward and the Great Cultural Revolution that followed afterward. In total, the death toll for the last six events I listed was slightly more than 37 million people. That's just over half of the UK's current population. What's somewhat unnerving is that despite the immediate sense of revulsion people experience when they hear those figures, is that we still do little to stop that kind of depression, which is why we have the brutal conflicts we see in Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Nigeria. Sadly, though, and as a result of being bombarded by immediate 24-hour news access, we've essentially become immune to the violence and suffering as part and parcel to the news coming out of those countries. Regardless of the world's accomplishments and what we think of ourselves, the stories I've just mentioned are proof that humanity can't actually govern or care for itself. It's that same picture of despair that's among the reasons people find it so hard to believe and trust in God. And why we sometimes hear people mumble a wish that they'd never been born. If we did the soul searching we need to, the human race would have to admit its failings. And then set aside our sense of self-righteousness and admit that we're more violent than any natural predator. But this kind of oppression is also eye-opening for another reason. Because it highlights how different God is. And it validates the words in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Although Ecclesiastes was written somewhere between 500 and 1,000 years before the teachings of Christ were written down, the author is challenging modern leaders to do the same thing that Jesus did in Mark 10, verses 42 through 45, when he told the disciples, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The words I just read in the words of Ecclesiastes 4 are God's way of challenging us to humbly address the futility that's an inherent and natural part of secular leadership. Just as importantly, they highlight the reality that our, in our ability to find solutions to the injustices they point out resides solely in our relationship with God and our willingness to be absolutely dependent on Christ. But alongside the things I've already mentioned, we also need to recognize that the scramble for political power is driven by the same sin as our more domestic faults. And that sin is envy, which is what we see in the next seven verses. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools hold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. 
competition can be fun, the kind of hyper-competition we see in the modern world is totally counter to who we are and what God expects of us. If you doubt that, I'm going to challenge you to look at the latter half of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 2. Because it's a picture of humanity working hand in glove with God and hand in hand with each other. But that relationship changed when humanity fell in the Garden of Eden. And it was overtaken by the kind of self-interest that's particularly noticeable in the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. It's that same sense of envy that drives the world's materialistic desires. And it's a direct violation of the ninth and 10th commandments charge against coveting. It's also why our political, business, and social systems border on dysfunctional. And why we see the level of bitterness and strife that permeates our social and political conversations. In an indirect way, it's that bitterness and strife that the author's trying to counter in these verses by revealing how destructive that kind of competitiveness and envy can be. And envy and competitiveness that stripped away the sense of community enjoyed by previous generations. And that has us see people as either winners or losers. So that rather than helping each other flourish as neighbors and colleagues, we spend our lives clawing our way over the people around us. Which is why we need to recognize and admit that the strides society has made have come at a terrible cost. And that the scramble for wealth, position, and power has left us feeling lonely and isolated and strained our ability to relate to the people we live and work with. And that, as I've just mentioned, is totally counter to the teachings of both the Old and New Testament. And it's been an absolute disaster because it often prevents us from being who God asks of us. And that's not right. Because the creation narrative makes it clear that we're supposed to care for the world and help each other flourish instead of striving to get ahead. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to be lazier, live a life of irresponsible leisure. Because that's not who we are either. Instead, our lives need to have a balance that challenges and uses our creative abilities, while at the same time allowing us the opportunity to know God and to enjoy the company of those around us. As Christians, the question we need to answer isn't whether or not we're going to live our lives that way. It's when are we going to start living our lives that way. Because that's the only way we can avoid the futility that occurs as a result of loneliness, which is what the author addresses next. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. 
but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them out. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The drive for material possessions is a natural instinct because we all have survival and security needs that have to be met. But when those needs go unchecked, our ordinary desires are overwhelmed by a sense of greed that makes us miserly and selfish and that drives us away from friends and family and the people we work with, leaving us alone and frustrated which is what the author is reminding us of in verses 7 through 12. He wants us to recognize how detrimental that is and how it impacts our lives and ultimately our faith and our relationship with God. That's why we need to examine our approach to life, to see if we're guilty of this, even if it's just an afterthought in the back of our minds. That way we can avoid both the loneliness and sense of community the author speaks to and may have experienced. Well, along with everything I've mentioned, and despite what we may think, the same sense of futility that impacts how we govern and that pushes us towards envy and ultimately leaves us feeling alone also overshadows any success or achievement we attain, which is what the last four verses in this chapter address. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the moon. The picture painted by the words in these last four verses reveal how untidy and messy life is. And it shines a spotlight on the contrast between people who remain steadfast in the face of success with those who fall victim to the vanity of celebrity and power. Without much effort at all, you can see the shadow of the well-known and often quoted words written by Lord Acton that power corrupts and Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Beyond that, these words are also a sober reminder of how fickle and fragile power truly is and how quickly it can be abused or lost. As much as anything else, they're a cautionary note to those in power to avoid overconfidence and routinely seek advice. Otherwise, we risk embracing the vain foolishness that leads to failure and that detrimentally impacts those who are charged with governing. And even though Jesus' name is never mentioned, these verses point us to the humility and selflessness that's supposed to separate Christianity from the rest of the world. And that Christ exemplified the demands of us in the passage from the Gospel of St. Mark that I read earlier. As we've looked at this morning's passage from Ecclesiastes 4 and think about the previous chapters we've studied, it's evident that the Bible and each book that's part of it weren't written to make us feel good or 
satisfy our sense of curiosity. They were written to make us think and to make us dependent on God as we try to live lives that emulate Christ's ministry and his willingness to confront the man-made injustice and ugliness that's such a part of life. At the same time, we're not called to endorse specific political parties or policies. Because even at their best, political activities are humanly partisan. And they seldom conform to what God demands of us. That said, as we seek to confront the issues that plague the modern world, we need to take the time to visualize what it means to be made in God's image and to value people the way Christ did in order to ensure that people flourish and that the marginalized are cared for. But for us to do that, rather than standing on the periphery, we need to engage society and then reevaluate the structures that support and protect people to ensure they do both that and simultaneously help and achieve and maintain the sense of solidarity and community that Christ's work on the cross paved the way for us to have. If you would, let pray silently with me. Almighty God, your word is living and active. And we are ever grateful for how it speaks into our lives and leads us to obediently respond to your call. Send your Holy Spirit and allow us to experience the grace and peace Jesus offers us so that we don't live in a false faith and a false hope of our own making. And fill us with a desire to ask the questions that need to be asked as we wait on the answers only Christ can give us as we witness to the truth of the gospel and convey its peace to the lost and fallen world around us. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sins. Amen.